health, wellness, fitness, relationships, and everything in between. We're removing the taboo from what really matters in midlife. I'm your host, Michelle Folan, and this is Asking for a Friend. The Constant Glucose Monitor is one of the most powerful tools in modern medicine, especially with the increase in metabolic disease. It can be an essential tool people can use to take back control of their health. The beauty of this technology is that I'm not just speaking of diabetics. Non-diabetics may still have struggles with metabolic syndrome. Dr. Paul Kolosnik is a double board certified emergency and metabolic health physician with 30 years of experience. He has used continuous glucose monitoring to help thousands of patients lose weight, prevent, and reverse disease. In his first book, The Continuous Glucose Monitoring Revolution, Dr. Kolosnik presents a comprehensive program for metabolic health success. Welcome to Asking for a Friend, Dr. Paul Kolosnik. Thank you for having me, Michelle. It's nice to meet you. And I did get to review your book, and it was fun for me. As you know, I have a diabetes background of sorts, was in that arena for about 12 years. So it brought back a lot of great memories (laughs) and lots of great information that actually I forgot. So I appreciate that very much. I would love for you to just provide a little information, fill in the holes what I didn't get to in in your introduction. Okay, thanks. Well, I'm certain you helped a lot of people when you were in the diabetes arena, so thank you for that effort. My background is in emergency medicine. I have worked in the emergency department for 25 years, still pulling a shift a week in the emergency department because I still enjoy closing the door and sitting down with the patients. But it is in that career in emergency medicine that I saw a lot of vascular disease peripheral vascular disease, congestive heart failure, strokes, heart attacks, uh, diabetic kidney disease, etc. And what gets all the press in the emergency department is the overdoses and the gunshot wounds and the multiple traumas. But what emergency physicians see every day, day in and day out, all day long, is the complications of vascular disease. That means inflammation of the arteries in your body and ultimately them getting clogged up to cause those problems that we talked about. And what I realized over that career is blood sugar, high blood sugar, even I think, and we'll get into this, even I think sometimes much more importantly than cholesterol is really what causes those issues for people. And then, of course, blood sugar also leads to the increased rates of obesity that we have. So I researched this and determined that, uh, and we will talk about this in detail, I imagine, as well, that really the best way to approach both weight loss and decreased vascular inflammation for the majority of overweight Americans is a low-carb diet with some other tools like intermittent fasting and strength training that lower insulin resistance because the key issue is insulin resistance. And so I started my metabolic health practice about seven years ago. I have treated thousands of patients since then, and it's been very satisfying to be able to prevent these problems as opposed to just react to them in the emergency department. And one thing that I think is worth noting is that you don't have to be obese or even overweight 
to have insulin resistance. And so would you say then insulin resistance is is the precursor to having full-blown metabolic disease? Yeah, insulin resistance comes first because it starts well before your blood sugar test tells you that you're pre-diabetic or your hemoglobin A1C tells you that you're pre-diabetic. Insulin resistance can be brewing for years before then. And people should be aware of this, especially if you have risk factors, which is primarily being overweight or having prediabetes or diabetes in your family. And I think it's important for people to be proactive to prevent those problems. You know, before you end up down the road, because you can get to a point, for example, when you can't reverse diabetes, prediabetes is generally reversible. So I think that's a very important period of time for people to be addressing these issues. So what you want to do is try to address these with diet and activity prior to the time that some of the problems are irreversible. And a lot of this disease is reversible. Prediabetes is reversible. With decreasing insulin resistance and weight loss, you can reverse sleep apnea. You can reverse fatty liver disease. You can lower your blood pressure. You can even lower your cholesterol with a low-carb, high-fat diet, which is a little bit counterintuitive, but we'll talk about that. So this is an opportunity for people. And one reason I'm doing this in my practice is because I've been able to help people basically change their path in terms of long-term health issues, both in reversing disease and preventing disease. When you are sitting down speaking to a patient for the first time, how much does heredity come into play? Because I guess it's kind of the chicken or the egg, right? Do we inherit the propensity for insulin resistance and obesity, or do we inherit the maybe the lifestyle or the habits? Yeah, so there's no question there is a genetic component because certain ethnic groups, even if not overweight, have a tendency to have insulin resistance. For example, South Asians have more insulin resistance, even if they are not overweight. But for the majority of Americans, it is lifestyle issues. And I have a certain philosophy about this. It is my belief that we were eating okay for generations in this country. And even our ancestors before that, when we had a balanced diet that was not heavy in carbohydrates. And then we were told in the 1970s to follow the food pyramid. There's like a circuitous way that happened in terms of fat is evil and you have to avoid fat at all costs and you should get away from red meat. And of course, what happens once we follow that advice by the U.S. Department of Agriculture, we've had epidemics of obesity and diabetes. So when we talk about low-carb diets, we're really advocating just going back to the way we ate for generations. You know, you look at a, a movie or a photograph from the 30s, 40s, and 50s, you don't see the rates of obesity that we have today. So what happened was when we were told to increase our carb intake to 50% of our diet overnight when the food pyramid came out in 1972, what happened was the epidemic of obesity took off and as predicted, insulin resistance rose. So 10 years later, the epidemic of diabetes took off. And now subsequently, we're seeing the fruits of that with the vascular, the rates of vascular disease that we see. So the answer is there is a genetic component, but a majority of this, I think, is lifestyle driven. You know, I had a guest on the podcast not too long ago, and we were talking about added sugars in foods. 
and that the new American Heart Association limit for women was 25 grams of added sugar. So that doesn't count fruit and Mm -hmm. the foods that where sugar is naturally occurring. 25 grams of sugar, added sugar, is not a lot, right? If you look at what a Coke is, what, 39 grams, a 12-ounce can of Coke is 39 grams. Yeah, absolutely. That's an issue. And, you know, what happened with our change to increase carbs? And, you know, I'm a capitalist, so I'm not going to demonize the food processing industry. They just have a business model that's profitable, even though I don't think it's in the best interest of the majority of Americans. But the way to make good tasting food is to mix sugar with refined flour with seed oils. And that's what we get in our processed food. 80% of the food that we eat in this country now is processed. And so people are just not aware of the amount of sugar they're, they're getting. And, and I'm going to throw a little thing in here about fruits. The fruits that mom told us to eat when she told us to eat all our fruits and vegetables are not the same fruits that are out there today. They're now genetically engineered to have high fructose contents, which is sugar. And so you actually have to be careful with everything you eat. So again, I'm just advocating going back to the days when we had less processed food when we had less refined we had less sugar added to our food and basically lower your blood sugar so that you can reduce your insulin resistance which helps to lose weight and we may get into the physiology of that okay you brought up seed oils so i'm going to ask you a question about that because i think there needs to be some clarification around what oils are okay for us which are inflammatory can you talk a little bit about that So I got to be careful because you're in Cincinnati, right? In the Cincinnati area, (laughs) the home of P&G. And basically anything that's made from a seed oil to a greater or lesser degree is inflammatory. So again, back in the 70s, we were told that you can't eat butter. You should eat margarine, which is obviously made from corn oil or one of the other seed oils. So generally, the best oils for cooking and the best oils for consumption are the omega-3 oils, which are olive oil and walnut oil and avocado oil. The other oils are seed oils. And, you know, there's soybean oil in pretty much every processed food that you end up purchasing. And what the reason I'm treading lightly is on the PNG thing is that the, the history is this is that the seed oils were initially produced by PNG for industrial lubricants, machines that needed oils. And then oil started bubbling up out of the ground in Pennsylvania in what the 1880s or whenever it was. And there was no longer a need for those seed oils as industrial lubricants. There was a cheaper way to produce machine lubricants. So PNG, again, good business people said, we got to find some other need for these seed oils. And they became food. Crisco. <laughs> yeah, the Crisco. Yeah. Even just regular old corn oil, you know, my mom cooked with for years. Seed oils in general are pro-inflammatory. Try and gravitate toward olive oil and avocado oil and and walnut oil. And seed oils are almost in every processed food. So you got to be careful of that. And then of course, fast food that is fried is fried in seed oils as well. All right. So we talked about insulin resistance. You don't necessarily need to be heavy to be insulin resistant. When would you suggest a patient start wearing a constant glucose monitor? 
Okay, so the normal variables to assess for a presence of a blood sugar problem are a fasting blood sugar, over 100 is pre-diabetic, over 125 is diabetic. The other parameter that your listeners may have heard about is hemoglobin A1C. Hemoglobin A1C is the number of glucose molecules, the percentage of glucose molecules that are attached to red blood cells. So hence the word hemoglobin and A1C is the amount of blood sugar that is attached to it. So those are traditional numbers. Now, unfortunately, sometimes even when those numbers are a little bit elevated, because the way our healthcare system is set up now, you'll hear from your doctor or medical provider is like, oh, your blood sugar is a little bit high. We should keep an eye on that. And what that means is you're pre-diabetic or approaching pre-diabetes. So that is a time when you should pay attention. And I believe it's a time when you aggressively should assess what's going on physiologically with your blood sugar. The best way to do that is twofold. One is the continuous glucose monitor, but I'm going to throw in another option to help assess your level of insulin resistance. It's a fasting insulin level. It's not done very often in American medicine, but a fasting insulin level along with the fasting blood glucose can give you your exact level of insulin resistance. So the physiology is that when you eat a carb of any type, your blood sugar rises and then your pancreas releases insulin. So insulin is the source of the signal to drive your blood glucose into your organs to use for energy. For example, your muscles need to contract. So insulin drives that blood glucose into your organs. But if your carb intake has been high for a long period of time, like it is for most Americans, then your blood glucose is going to be persistently high. After a while, the organs, like your muscles, stop listening to that insulin signal. The pancreas doesn't get the message. It keeps pumping out insulin, but the organs don't listen. That's what insulin resistance is. Your organs are resisting the signal from insulin. Blood sugar is toxic. It causes inflammation, inflammation in our joints, inflammation of our blood vessel lining. So something has to happen with that blood sugar. So it goes to the liver and gets converted to fat, and then it gets deposited around the middle. That's the reason that increased carbs cause increased weight for the majority of people. Also causes a problem called fatty liver disease, again, because blood glucose is getting converted to fat. So the best way to assess level of insulin resistance that I have found is that you should check a fasting insulin level, which I think in terms of inflammatory issues can be just as important or more important than a cholesterol. And then the other thing I do is I have my patients wear a two-week continuous glucose monitor so they can see what is happening with their blood sugar in real time. So these monitors are the devices you see on the back of the arms of diabetics. They give you a 24-7 blood glucose reading. So with my patients during their initial evaluation, we do a fasting insulin level and then I put a CGM, continuous glucose monitor on them for two weeks and I say, don't change your diet. Just keep eating where you're eating and let's see where you live in terms of what's going on with your blood sugar. And then we follow that for two weeks as well. Now, do you have them keep a food calendar or food log so that you can look and see where those spikes are and what they ate? Yeah, people get pretty good at this pretty quick in terms of realizing what spikes their sugars and what's 
does not. So yeah, there's actually a mechanism right within the app. The monitor's on the back of the arm. You scan it with your phone. You get graphs of your blood sugar over the course of the day. You get an immediate reading of what your blood sugar is at that moment. And you can also add what your food was because there is individual variability from person to person. Of food that you eat may affect me differently. So yeah, people can get a great handle on what is spiking their sugars and what is keeping their sugars high. You brought up visceral fat, and I would love for you to explain the difference between visceral fat and subcutaneous fat and why visceral fat. You did talk about the insulin resistance with visceral fat, but what are the long-term ramifications of carrying around too much of it? Yeah. So visceral fat is the fat that's actually within the abdomen. So it's not actually just under your skin in the area of your abdomen. It's within the abdomen. And of course, when you have an increased amount of visceral fat, you're going to have higher levels of cholesterol and higher levels of triglycerides. So visceral fat is pro-inflammatory. Now, historically, that fat has been there to help us through times of famine or when, for example, ancestors, the only means they had for food supply was honey. So it had its purpose way back in the day. But for those of us now that have food at our fingertips 24-7, it is not as helpful and is pro-inflammatory. So my goal is to work with my patients to reduce visceral fat. And the way you do that is you reverse the process we just talked about. So we want to lower your blood sugar, decrease your carbohydrate intake, not only sugars, but other complex carbs like pastas and uh, some fruits, bananas, for example, are very high in carbs, potatoes, rice, etc. So what happens then when you're taking in less carbs, the organs, and again, let's say your muscles are looking around for more energy and they notice that the blood glucose is lower. So they're saying, we need energy here somehow. What are we going to use for energy? The blood glucose is lower, but you're denying those organs that persistently high level of blood glucose. So they got to look for an alternative. What do they do? They look down, they look around the middle, and they see that there's a source of energy there. And that source of energy is fat that is broken down into fatty acids that then serves as a source of energy. So basically, that's what we want to happen because that's when we lose weight. If you are on an aggressive low-carb diet, you carry that a little bit further and you produce ketones when you're breaking down that fat. And that's where the word keto diet comes from. But basically, we want to lower blood sugar so the organs have to use fat as a source of energy. And that results in weight loss, reversal of fatty liver disease, usually blood pressure drops with that. This is interesting. Triglycerides drop like a rock on a low-carb, high-fat diet. And again, that's because blood glucose is converted to triglycerides in the liver. And if you lower blood glucose, less of that conversion is taking place. And quite honestly, I don't see cholesterol altered a lot. Again, people are put on a low-carb, high-fat diet. Yeah, your cholesterol may go up a few points, down a few points, but it usually doesn't change a lot. I would like to talk about keto just for a second, because I know lots of people who have done keto and they gained their weight back. Yeah. And what you're talking about is just a lower carb diet, which in, in my opinion, my humble opinion, seems way more sustainable and realistic. 
I agree. I do have some patients that embrace a keto lifestyle. I don't push my patients in that direction. So you know the numbers. The cutoff is keto is usually less than 20 grams of carbs a day. My patients are usually at 35 to 50. Just so you know, the typical American diet can be over 300 grams of carbs a day. But usually I get my patients to 35 to 50, which is very sustainable. I think much more sustainable than the calorie deficit model. The cut your calories model is just burn more energy than you eat. Just basically it's an energy balance model. But I think weight loss is more complex than that. It's a hormonal issue, the star hormone being insulin. So I encourage my patients primarily just to go low carb because I think it's sustainable. And quite honestly, once they see the results, this kind of becomes a lifestyle thing. As my patients have put it with the continuous glucose monitors, it's like once I see what that donut does or that candy bar does or even that big bowl of pasta does to my blood sugar, I can't unsee it. And you naturally gravitate to a lifestyle where there's a lower carb intake. And it really sometimes without thinking about it a lot subsequently. You know, I was laughing because when you said, you know, you're keep your patients within 30 to maybe 50 grams of carbohydrate a day. I was like, your patients aren't having the venti Starbucks lattes, are they? Because they blow it all in one one trip through the drive-thru. Yeah, or or blow it (laughs) twice in one trip through the drive-thru. Yeah. Yeah. Oops. Oh, gosh. I think this is a great time to talk about the GLP-1s because – I would assume this now is kind of part of not just the glucose monitoring, but then, okay, some people need that little jump start of with the weight loss. Where do you stand on the GLP-1s and how are you implementing those into your practice? Okay. So, of course, the GLP-1s are the Ozembics, the Wagovis, the Monjuros, the Zepbounds, generic names, semaglutide for Ozembic, uh, and terzipatide for Monjuro. So these medicines, uh, you know, are gaining great popularity. You know, a lot of the movie stars are on them. When I first work with the patient, I want to do that full metabolic health assessment first. We figure out what their level of insulin resistance is. We talk about their CGM patterns. And then if they want to, either out of the gate or if they get a stall during the normal process of not using medicines, then we talk about sprinkling the medicines in a little bit. These medicines have downsides, and the big downside is weight regain when you stop using them. My preference would be that somebody comes in and I am not committing them to a lifetime of being on medicines, that we're talking about lifestyle changes first. And those lifestyle changes are not only low carb, but the other important components are intermittent fasting and then strength training because it all, strength training also decreases insulin resistance. And maybe we can get back to that more than cardiovascular training. So we want to go ahead and build those lifestyle changes in. That being said, then I go ahead and can titrate in lower doses of these medicines. So the way I believe they should be used is 
lower doses, not maximal doses, but lower doses with lifestyle changes for limited periods of time so that we can get somebody through a plateau or maybe get them a jump start. But Stephen Covey said in his Seven Habits of of Highly Effective People book uh, 25 years ago, begin with the end in mind. And the end in mind is that you want to be able to get off these medications over a period of time. And the way to do that is to use them as a crutch. Basically, if I sprain my ankle, using a crutch for a few weeks is a fine thing to do. It'll allow me to heal, but then not necessarily be committed to having to get around on crutches for the rest of my life. So the way I kind of distinguish my practice from, I think, what's going on out there with this GLP-1 mania is a lot of people are just seeking the medicines. There are internet programs where they're just giving people medicines, brief intake, here's your medicine, good luck, see you in six months. These medicines should really only be used in the context of a comprehensive program with a plan to eventually get off the medications. Okay. I'm really glad to hear you say that because doing this podcast, I've talked to quite a few women who have been on them and they have gained the weight back, but more importantly, they've lost a lot of muscle. So with, with that weight loss and it, they yeah. they naturally lose muscle. And I love what you're saying. So the weight training is so, so important, but also the nutrition counseling, making sure they're getting enough protein, right? Absolutely. So, you, you know, you teed me up there. So the great thing about strength training is it also reduces insulin resistance. And the physiology there is just you're increasing the quality and the receptivity of the insulin receptors on your muscles. So your muscles are soaking up more insulin as they get a little bit better, soaking up more blood glucose. So you're reducing insulin resistance. If you're on GLP-1s, you have to be strength training and getting adequate protein absolutely critical because you're losing muscle mass. And this is huge for everybody, especially as you get into middle age and older, because we're all losing 7% or more of our muscle mass every decade as we age. So, and for women, it's just a a big, uh, even bigger deal because the degree of muscle mass you have relates to your degree of osteoporosis. So if your muscle mass is decreasing, then that means your risk for osteoporosis is going to be a lot greater. So the three legs of the stool for my programs are low carb with adequate protein. We always emphasize adequate protein, some intermittent fasting. I usually have people do just 14 to 16 hours or so. If people want to fast, do a day long fast little, you know, once in a while, that's fine. But I really just recommend 14 to 16 hours and then add the strength training. And then again, in a minority of patients, we sprinkle in the medicine. You know, no one would want to be around me if I fasted for more than 14 hours. Trust me. <laughs> I, <laughs> you've seen the Snickers commercials? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. You get hangry. Oh, yeah. you, you yeah. have no idea. So just so you know, this girl here is not fasting for 24 hours at any time in my life. Do you have patients, though, that they want to stay on the GLP-1? Do, do they ever strong arm you? <laughs> Again, so the way these, let's talk a little bit about these medicines specifically and how they're used. So they have three mechanisms of action, and that is they slow gastric emptying, which means they keep your stomach full for a longer period of time. They lower blood glucose. They were originally 
you, you know, found to be effective for weight loss in non-diabetics because they lower blood glucose, but they don't drop blood glucose into a low range. So the drug companies used them initially for diabetics and then found out people lost weight on it and then redid studies on non-diabetics and the weight loss was evident as well. So that's why they became popular as weight loss medications branded as Wigovi and uh, ZepBound. And then the other mechanism of action is that uh, they have a direct hypothalamic effect on the brain. So lowering blood glucose basically just means there you, it gives you an opportunity to burn more fat like we talked about. And then the third mechanism of action is on the hunger center in your brain. So they're effective for those reasons. When they're used, they're titrated up. You've probably heard these medications have side effects, the biggest one being nausea. You start them at one dose and you use the same dose for four weeks, and then you titrate it up a little bit and use the same dose for four weeks, and then you continue that process. You can continue that process bringing levels up, the, the dose up for four or five months. I usually try and get to a maximum dose after about three months. And then the goal should be don't go to maximal doses because, again, you want to titrate down. You asked about people not wanting to come off the medications. So we have that. But, you know, if you've done these other lifestyle changes, you're positioning yourself to be able to come off the medications. And I have had some patients that we titrate back down and we keep on low doses for extended periods of time. And quite honestly, a couple of things happens then is that, is that, you know, fewer side effects, you can maintain the weight loss, uh, and it actually decreases the cost when you're on a lower dose as well. Oh, I would think so, because they're not, they're not inexpensive. No, let's talk about that for a second. So right now, limited, there's limited coverage for, uh, actually, let me back up even further. If you're diabetic, usually you have access to Ozembic or Monjuro, one of the two, but you got to be a bona fide diabetic meeting the lab criteria for that. If you are not diabetic, the medications are Wigovi and Zepbound, Wigovi being semaglutide and Zepbound being terzipatide. And there's very limited insurance coverage for that now because, you know, over $1,000 a month and, you know, a lot of employers just, I mean, can't afford that. This is a bigger issue economically with 60% of Americans being overweight and potentially have apical use of these medications. But that is hundreds of billions of dollars yearly if everybody would be covered for them. So again, why, you know, some guardrails need to be put on the use of these in terms of being involved in a program related to this. And if you don't have insurance coverage, the out-of-pocket is generally over $1,000 a month, which, you know, of course, nobody can afford. There is a compounded medication that is produced in compounding pharmacies, and, and we provide this to our patients, certain providers that have a special relationship with compounded pharmacies. Compounding means you mix it with another substance such as vitamin B12 to help control nausea, and that is available in kind of a generic form. It's not exactly a generic, but it's very similar. So, and available at about a third the cost. So we do do that with a number of our patients that don't have access to the brand name medications because of cost. And it, it, it's a good alternative. The medications are safe. Compounded medicines, I should mention, are not FDA approved, but they are produced in state licensed pharmacies. And uh, we've had hundreds of patients on that compounded medication and not had issues. About a week ago, I heard on the news that, and maybe Eli Lilly is looking to partner with telehealth basically so they can get yeah. these 
medicines into more yeah. hands. And I sit here and I listen to all the work you do with a patient to ensure their success. And I just think, oh, that just made my skin crawl. You know, and I think, oh, these patients are going to miss out on all the other things of the, the coaching and the, the diet recommendations. And I just got to think this, that that's just a bad, bad idea. Yeah, well, think about the model. I mean, Eli, an Eli Lilly sponsored program is not going to be anxious to titrate you down and off the medication. So, yeah, I think that's why I love, you know, I'm an independent private practice. I'm not working with the health system or another big group. You know, I'm just doing this because after that emergency medicine career, I became passionate. And, it's very satisfying. I don't want to be trite or overstate this, but even without the medicines, you see, I had a 19-year-old that lost 70 pounds. Her her parents were overweight. Her parents were diabetic. She understood that she didn't want that to be her future. And so we were able to redirect her, again, low-carb, CGM-guided diet, intermittent fasting, strength training. And she's never going back. She's made these changes, and she's not going to have the problems that her parents have, one of which was on dialysis. So it's very satisfying to do that. And the majority of my patient population is actually, I think, your, your listenership, middle-aged women, Women, I don't know if we talked about this, but women have a tendency to get it a little bit better than men. I mean, women seem to understand that we have physical vulnerabilities. Us guys would rather just stick our head in the sand and, and, and wait for the crisis in the emergency department. But the majority of my population is middle-aged women. They come to me because they're overweight. So I have a selected population in that regard. And so they seem to understand that they need to do something. Sometimes they'll drag their husband along in this process as well. And even if they don't, when they have success, their family around them sees why they have success with this type of program and they will join in and they will pursue a lifestyle change as well. So the reason I'm so passionate about this is because everybody wins here. Patients get healthier. They avoid long-term complications. Their overall health care costs are less. They get to avoid trips to the emergency department. You know, and I get the satisfaction of seeing the changes that they're able to make. You know, I think that's fantastic. And we all know that obesity is a huge weight on the healthcare system. And if we can just get more people aware and proactive, I think we'd be so much better off as a country, just be healthier and happier. I do want you to tell the listeners, though, where they can find your practice in your book. Thank you. So uh, my practice is in the Dayton area, but the majority of my practice is now telemedicine. This is a practice that lends itself to, you know, this kind of interaction. And so I see patients in Ohio, where I'm licensed, Ohio, Indiana, Florida, and Arizona. We can do entire visits by telemedicine. We can call the continuous glucose monitor prescription into the uh, patient's pharmacy, if they're on medications, we can call that into the pharmacy or we can have their compounded semaglutide delivered directly to their home. And uh, the CGMs can be called in as a script as well. So th this lends itself to telemedicine. The other thing I was going to say actually was labs can be done locally and then we can get the results of that. So my office is in Dayton and the website 
for the practice is metabolic MDs. So the word metabolic and then MDS.com. And basically I have a great staff. If people want to make an inquiry on the contact form there, then my staff will call and talk to them and explain a little bit more what we're about, answer questions, including those about cost of our programs. But Ohio, Indiana, Florida, and Arizona. Do you have any suggestion, Paul, about if someone is not in one of those states, how they can find a doctor like you that can help them with their metabolic disease? Yeah, we're a little bit of a rare breed out there right now. So there is a group called Low Carb USA that has a provider directory. So if you just Google Low Carb USA, the guy that runs it is Doug Reynolds. He is a great guy. He's not a clinician. He's just a great guy that has a passion about how this type of approach can change lives. So you can go to the medical provider re- provider directory at low carb USA. But I will say that finding practitioner in this area is, it can be a little bit difficult. I actually am a little bit gratified that I have a few patients out of Chicago and they drive into Indiana to see me. So the medical board rules are that you have to, the patient has to physically be in the state where the provider is licensed. So I've had, have had people, um, you know, are they vacation in Florida? So we do that. So, but if I can't help people, then I would look on the low carb USA site. Okay. I think that that's good advice. I appreciate that. And then how about your book? So the book, which I will shamelessly plug here, The Continuous Glucose Monitor Revolution has been out for about six months. It's the best-selling book on CGMs on Amazon. It is focused on use by non-diabetics and pre-diabetics to get the kind of information that we talked about here and that I think can change people's lives. My patients have said, again, once they see those graphs on the phone, they can't unsee that. And so I march people through the program about how you can use a continuous glucose monitor to change diet, why strength training is an important, how intermittent fasting can add to that process. And then we do talk for a chapter about the medication, semaglutide as well. So it's the continuous glucose monitor revolution for non-diabetics on Amazon. Very good. And I will put all that in the show notes. One last question. Is there a pillar of self-care that you practice for yourself? So this goes back to my emergency medicine. If you mean, are you talking about a single item or a or a program. I, would... I practice what I preach. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. We could do another half hour of yeah. uh, Paul's self-care. Yeah. Really, I think, is there something that you do for yourself every day that you think has made a difference in your health? It's not every day because you got to give yourself rest days. But I, I think strength training is huge for middle-aged and older Americans. And some of that harkens back to my time in the emergency department as well. And it's this. So so I'm actually going to be even more specific. Strength training, but strength training involving the lower body, leg strength. I have seen countless people over the years that lose their mobility, can't get up and around in their own home, have to go into a nursing home, not because they have a joint problem or a neurological problem, but just because they don't have adequate leg strength. They don't have enough strength in their legs to stay mobile. So I've become kind of passionate about that. And so strength training and especially, I don't know if you know this phrase, don't skip leg day. <laughs> yeah, 
<laughs> don't skip leg day. Don't wear baggy pants around the gym so nobody can see your little skinny legs is what the old joke used to be. Mm-hmm. But don't skip leg day. So I try and do legs at least twice a week just because I want to maintain my mobility. So if you ask, you ask me for a pillar of my own health, it, it is... I want to maintain adequate muscle mass in my lower extremities so as long as I'm healthy, I'm able to get around. And I think that's very important for people. Amen. That's one of mine too. So uh, Dr. Paul Kolasik, thank you so much for being here. Uh, Appreciate this. This was extremely informative. And I, I think our listeners are going to come away with some great information. I really appreciate you having me on, Michelle. Follow Asking for a Friend on social media outlets and provide a review and share this show wherever you get your podcasts. Reviews and sharing help us grow. 